Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Greetings, pod pickers. It's Tony Blackman here welcoming you to the Reasons to be Cheerful Top 10 Ideas of the Year. What's going up? What's going down? And what's a non-mover? Handing over to your esteemed hosts, it's Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Take it away. Well, an annual tip of the hat to Tony Blackburn, who is the announcer for our annual Reasons to be Cheerful chart show. Not off. (laughs) You think I'd have made it as a DJ? Yes, very much so. On hospital radio, I think, think you could have been a big, big hit. Why do I feel that's a backhanded compliment? I mean, it's certainly not front-handed, but, you know, let's let's not get bogged down in detail. So uh, do you want to remind people what we do at this time of year, then? We look back, and I tell you, it's a tough it's a tough gig, this, because somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to look through, listen to 52 absolutely stonkingly good episodes and whittle it down to 10. And honestly... I mean that process of whittling it down. It's 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 not an envious task, is it, Jeff? Because it's so hard. There's you know, so much gold. It's all wheat and no chaff. Exactly. There's just so. I mean, so many brilliant episodes, jostling, jostling with each other, rutting to get into the top <laughs> ten. Um, you know, with with. With their episode antlers, you know. <laughs> um, I love sort of, this metaphor. I mean, the top ten is an honour. It but, is, you know. Then, then, you know. Never mind the top three, the top spot. I yeah. mean, but but, honestly, but there can only be one episode that is ultimately beheaded and then mounted on the wall of the cheerful yeah. festive cabin. I don't really like the guillotine metaphor, uh, <laughs> but the the but you know, it's 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 hard. It's hard. Should we should we should we make a start? Let's commence. And the countdown begins at number ten. And it's Who Run the World, which is of course a play on Beyonce, apparently. Uh, Julia Gillard on women in politics. And I thought this was a, a brilliant episode. Uh, we spoke to former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard about her book Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons. Since the episode, New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, one of the leads we talked about with Julia, has been re-elected with the landslide victory in October's elections. In November, Kamala Harris was elected the first woman U.S. Vice President. And Julia's co-author on the book, Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, has also made it to being one of the final two candidates to be next Director General of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. If she is appointed, she will be the first woman and first person from Africa to hold the position. This is Julia talking about how women in politics have to navigate the various expectations of them. Talking from your own experience and maybe the leaders you interviewed, how do women leaders navigate this this conundrum? How can they navigate this conundrum? Each of them intuitively felt that there was a pathway they had to walk where they appeared strong enough So people thought that they had what it takes to lead, but they also needed to appear empathetic. And they sort of intuitively knew if they fell one side or the other, you know, too too strong or too caring, that that would be a problem, that people would think, "Mm, too strong, not likeable, too caring, she's too much of a softie to lead the nation. Um, And all of them talked, and this is, you know, across very different cultures and contexts, all of them talked about self-limiting some behaviours because they were conscious of this, like second-guessing, you know, what would happen if they cried, uh, for example. What would happen if a man cried, do you think, a male leader? I I think because it's against stereotype, 
I actually think it can be uh, received uh, received well. Uh, in I think it depends a bit what you're uh, crying about. Uh, but yeah. in politics, when I've seen men moved to tears uh, because of, you know, um, dreadful natural disasters, loss of life, uh, they're trying to convey that news to their nation and they've been moved to tears, people have received that as an outpouring of uh, empathy that was appropriate to the occasion. Um I I felt this in in my own experience, you know, mostly in Australian politics, not always, but mostly in Australian politics in, um, you know, contemporary times, and by that I mean the last sort of 30-odd years, uh, when uh, male prime ministers have left the prime ministership, they've lost a leadership ballot or they've lost an election, uh, they've uh, shed a tear. Uh, When that happened to me, I was... 100% 100% determined not to uh, because I really did think there would be categories of people that said to themselves, I knew it, I knew it, that I knew these women wow. weren't up to it, I knew they couldn't wow. take it. Uh, so I steeled myself to not do it. And I don't recall there being a strong adverse reaction when any of the men did it. And we're going up the charts now to number nine. Why did it take a pandemic valuing the everyday economy? This episode was about the so-called foundational everyday economy. We spoke to care assistant Chika Rubin and Kelly Andrews from the GMB Union about the experiences of care workers during the pandemic, along with Professor Carol Williams and Josh Miles from the Federation of Small Business in Wales. Since the episode, a growing movement of unions, care providers and politicians have been calling for an urgent pay rise for care workers. This follows a national campaign from the Living Wage Foundation and Citizens UK for the government to invest to ensure that care workers are paid the real living wage. The government are yet to respond, but 50 social care organisations across the UK have accredited with the Living Wage Foundation since the campaign started, and thousands of care workers have got a pay rise. Here's Kelly talking about the problem with how we value care work. I think, again, Ed, you know, before COVID, social care was seen as under, you know, it was undervalued, underpaid, low skilled. It was very much seen as a job that anybody could do, anybody could walk into. And it was actually a job that you, if you asked a parent, what do you want your child to grow up to be a care worker? Absolutely not. You know, it would be something that they wouldn't even consider for, for, their, for their children. COVID highlighted actually what social care really is, how professional the workforce are, the skills that are needed to undertake 90, 99% of the job. It is highly skilled. And I suppose the one thing that I hope that comes out of this, because we had the clap for carers, what we have to make sure is that going forward, the recognition of what the care workforce really means to this country. And we should be recognising that in the pay and the terms and conditions that our care staff get. We can no longer, we should no longer accept that care is a minimum wage job. It's not a minimum wage job. That's an insult to social care. And it's an insult to all those people that actually rely on social care. You know, as a minimum, we should be expecting, as a minimum, living wage for the staff. At the very least, we should be expecting that for the social care workforce. If we want that service to be provided to our most vulnerable, our older people, and to be locked after the way that we would want our family members to be locked after. I've got one last question, which is, what do you think it says about our country that people who do the most important job are paid the least? Well, you just couldn't make it up, really, could I? The only reason, in my view, that this is a minimum wage job um, and that it is not recognised by society is because it's a female dominated workforce it's low paid female and it is not recognized for being the important role there is and, and and that is the reality of it we see care as a woman's job as something you do in between picking the kids up from school uh that's something women can do because well you just care and actually if you sat down and went through a day in chica's life and, you know, minute by minute, looked at what she did. We would not question 
doubling the rate of pay that Chica would get because we would not imagine that anybody would be paid anything less than a decent wage for this. It's the Reason to be Cheerful top 10 episodes of the year and at number eight, it's Black Lives Matter. Now, Black Lives Matter is easily the most significant movement of the year, sparking a reckoning on racial injustice and police violence across the world. In fact, since the episode came out, researchers have concluded that the Black Lives Matter movement is the largest and most diverse political movement in US history. Between 15 and 26 million people are thought to have taken part in Black Lives Matter protests in the US alone this year, not to mention the protests here in the UK and the rest of the world. And in the episode, we spoke to former Deputy Mayor of London, Matthew Ryder, about what the Black Lives Matter protests mean for the UK, and also to Professor Kalwant Bhopal about her book, White Privilege. And here's Matthew on why the protests were so important and how the movement can achieve real change. How important is the role of activism in putting pressure on the political system and and making sure that these kinds of recommendations are put into force? It's extremely powerful. I I think um, it doesn't happen without a level of activism outside. And that that happens in two ways. And for people listening in, they can understand that their activism can really contribute. The first way is to support those community organizations that are being active. I can tell you from personal experience that when you have community groups or small organizations that are working on these issues, when they are lobbying those in political positions of power, and they have access to those positions of power, it makes a massive difference to the conversation that takes place in the room. It's huge. Um, and having the right people in positions of power, you know, Sadiq Khan's administration, whoever it is, you know, making sure that you have people who understand these issues is really important. Um, I think the second way, though, is what we're seeing now, which is, for the reasons I've just explained, we do have a situation where We've, we're forgetting the lessons of the past and we're slipping backwards in terms of how we're dealing with these issues in terms of the relationship between black people and the police. The big disturbances of 2011 after the um, shooting of Mark Duggan uh, should be a reminder of how serious things can get when that relationship breaks down. And we are stretching that relationship to breaking point in a well-intentioned effort to deal with knife crime and serious violence but slipping back into old ways of dealing with it, like what is now suspicionless stop and search, not even based on suspicion, suspicionless stop and search. And we are heading for a problem and seeing young people on the street of all ethnicities saying, we want to do something about the lives of black people in this context of policing is immensely powerful. It means that those who have that intention in politics already have the wind behind their wings and they can say this is really important look what's happening in the street and those who are skeptical about it and say no the public isn't interested in that are faced with a huge amount of people saying we actually are black lives matter to us so i think it's enormously powerful and the kind of activism you're seeing now makes a massive massive difference what people need to do now those who are campaigners those who are activists what you need to do now is formulate what you want out of this what do you want are specific policies that you want you know, so, so for example, you're seeing that in the US. We want the officers charged. That's really powerful. That's happened. The next big ask, I don't know if you've seen a campaign that's, that's gathered a lot of traction in the last few days called Eight Can't Wait. It's a website and there's a hashtag attached to it, but it's really done well on social media. And I think it's a really great example of a campaign because what they're saying is here are eight policies that if everybody across the US implemented those policies, there'd be a 72% reduction in deaths. And I think what we need that step with what's been asked for here. At number seven, it's We Built This City on Bikes and Strolls. Now, that could you be the number want... one episode title of the year. That That is uh, you some may, good you may, want, you may wonder how we get our episode titles. Uh, and We're going to let some light in on the magic. Basically... Joel emails around on Sunday night uh, and we scratch our heads, try and make some bad dad jokes and uh, generally struggle. (laughs) I think Joel and Emma deserve the most credit for these, I think. I think they do. And and Jeff always feels a bit sort of hard done by because he says that his titles never get used. 
this episode was about how towns and cities have given over space to walking and cycling during the pandemic. We spoke to former Olympic cyclist and gold medal winner turned great Manchester walking and cycling commissioner, Chris Boardman, and former New York Transport Commissioner, Jeanette Sadiq-Khan. Since the start of the COVID pandemic, more than 900 miles of new bike lanes have been promised across Europe. Jeff and I have both taken up cycling this year. I'm wondering why it's only at number seven, this one. I, I would more never Jeff- have predicted that at this time last year, that either of us would be cyclists. Yeah, me with my electric bike, when I, do, when I don't switch on the electric because I'm so obsessive. More generally, cycling across the UK is still way up this year compared to previous years. On the episode, we heard from Chris Boardman about Greater Manchester's B network. Since then, Greater Manchester has secured millions of pounds more funding to make some of its cycle lanes permanent and move it to the next stage of development of its B network. Here's Jeanette Sadiq Khan talking about how towns and cities have reimagined their use of public space. Well, what's happened in cities around the world is just gutting. Um, our streets have gone silent. And people have retreated indoors. And, you know, cities without people in the street look nothing at all like a city. And this pandemic has challenged so many of our underlying assumptions about health and economies and uh, education, politics, science. And it's also transformed transportation overnight. You know, it was just a few months ago where we thought that the future of transportation was going to be about e-scooters and autonomous vehicles and e-hail companies And then the pandemic hit and suddenly traffic is down 50% in the United States. Um, In London, yesterday's morning peak was down almost 40%. We have 30 million Americans out of work. I think you have 9 million out of work. And, you know, millions of people are working from home. And I think what's really interesting here about the global response is that this has nothing to do with new technology Uh, But it's really about the street and the old mobility. And I think you're seeing a revolutionary reclaiming of street space for people on a scale we've never seen before. And it's marking an historic turning point uh, for cities. And so the pandemic didn't just transform our streets. It really revealed the streets that we needed uh, all the time. Um, And the old road order that we're used to, this car-centric city, You know, it wasn't working before. We had 1.3 million people dying on our streets, 4.2 million people dying every year from pollution, and we were driving toward destructive climate change. So it's always been a fight to reclaim streets for people, but the story is different now that the streets are relatively empty. And you can see this sort of blank slate for what's possible. And so you're seeing these road reclamations in London, in Manchester, in Auckland, in Mexico City, Uh, in Bogota. And it's not just these emergency actions, but these are strategies for long-term economic recovery and prosperity that won't just outlive the pandemic. They're going to redefine how cities look and feel and function for decades to come. On to number six. Oh, tension is mounting. Dump Donald, save the world, the road to COP26. And this was recorded the week of the US presidential election. And we spoke about how to make next year's COP26 climate summit a success. And I I think it was uh, a fairly giddy episode, to say the least, as the results became apparent. And it it was a great moment, actually, when a friend of the pod, Cristiana Figueres, heard the uh, news. heard our call. Yeah. The the people at Decision Desk HQ RTBC (laughs) made the call. Wolf Milliband. Yeah, thank you very uh, much. Also, exactly. We also spoke to WWF's Katie White, journalist Isabel Hilton, and young activist Josh Trigale. Now, of course, we saw just before Christmas uh, the Electoral College confirming Joe Biden's victory in the November election, bringing Trump's many legal battles to an end. And Biden has vowed to rejoin the Paris Agreement within days of taking office and has also announced he will convene a World Climate Summit within his first 100 days in office. And here's Christiana on why US membership of the Paris Agreement is so important, and that moment when she heard the call. Well, it is actually quite interesting that we had uh, many industrialized economies that came forward to put a long-term target on the table, and some of them even a medium-term target, in the absence of the United States, so not making independent. 
So the EU went forward and said, we're going to have a green economic recovery, the Green Deal, um, that will address both job creation, economic stability, and decarbonization of the economy, because they have understood that that is all a an indivisible package. And they were the first ones that came out in the summer um, and said, that's the way that we're going forward. Now, recently, we had China coming forward in September, President Xi Jinping, in person saying that China was committing to be at peak emissions before 2030. Interesting that he uses the preposition before and not the preposition by 2030. He said before 2030. He also said that China will be at net zero emissions before 2060. Amazing announcements. And then that was followed by Korea also taking on this long-term target. And then recently, Japan. Huge news from the prime minister. So interestingly enough, Ed, I think it will definitely help, uh, especially in other countries now outside of the G7, uh, more looking over to developing countries. Very difficult for developing countries to move forward if the United States is being so obstreperous. Let me ask you this uh, question, Christiana. We're going to get into the substance of what we need out of um, Glasgow, but but oh, what does NBC it say? and ABC have called the election for Biden. <laughs> oh, Christiana! <laughs> okay, I'm so pleased to hear it from you. <laughs> oh. G. There is a G in the world. OMG. OMG. Finally, justice, truth, science. Oh my God. <laughs> so the election has been called, at least by some of the networks, for, for Biden. Yes. But, but you know, Ed, here's the thing it's not only about climate, right? It's not only about climate. It is the fact that. The last four years of the dark house have been so nefarious on so many issues, on human rights, on racism, on in, on democracy. So yes, I'm happy that the United States is coming back into the Paris Agreement. But frankly, when you look at the full context of what has been destroyed over the past four years... Yes, the Paris Agreement and climate change is important. And in the long run, it's probably what we will remember the most. But in the short run, in the immediate term, we have to return to decency. We have to return to respect. We have to return to solidarity. And we have to return to equality. And that is what had my scream. Number five. Um This was tackling rough sleeping. Why does it take a pandemic? And back in May, we spoke to Matt Downey from the homeless charity Crisis and Maggie Brunias from the Homeless Network Scotland about the amazing effort to house all rough sleepers during the pandemic. Now, around 15,000 rough sleepers and other homeless people were housed in emergency accommodation under the everyone in policy during the first COVID lockdown. And it was widely considered a success. Um, The scheme itself officially ended in July, but many councils have tried to extend it and prevent people from returning to the streets with funding from the government's Next Steps accommodation programme. Unfortunately, though, the economic impact of COVID-19 has led to a fresh wave of homelessness in the UK and charities are now calling for a second Everyone In programme. And here's Matt on how rough sleeping was tackled during that first lockdown. Yeah, so something absolutely extraordinary unfolded just over a month ago, um, where in response to the to the pandemic, someone quite extraordinary turned up back in Whitehall called Louise Casey, who I know you, you will have worked with before, Ed, uh, who has a track record in, in reducing rough sleeping, but also working on a series of other issues. And, and uh, an email was sent out to all local councils in England on a Wednesday evening, uh, seemingly innocuously, and what it said was, we would like you to end rough sleeping by the weekend. And uh, lo and behold, thousands of people were brought from the streets and out of night shelters and put into uh, hotels, put into student accommodation, put into into flats, self-contained units. Um, and 
not everyone that need, needed somewhere uh, safe to stay got somewhere safe to stay, but we're now at a stage where over 5,000 people have been taken off the streets and out of night shelters in England. Um, and, and the vast majority of rough sleeping was ended almost overnight. So the government's target, which it had, which was to end rough sleeping in five years, was reduced to two days. And we saw uh, that not not only was it absolutely possible, but it was possible really quickly. So um, really, the, the, the game is up on any kind of cynicism, that particularly in terms of rough sleeping, that it can't be ended. Um, and it's not complete. Yes, there are still some people on the streets and some people, um, you know, haven't necessarily flourished in that hotel situation. But the vast majority of people are now safe, safe from the, from the, the virus, but also safe from the everyday dangers of, of rough sleeping and homelessness. It's a 90 percent reduction, is it, Matt? Well, the government claims a, a 90% reduction. It's not quite that. What that, that, that sort of breaks down. It's 90% of people that had an offer um, about a month ago. Um, you know, were, were given were given a, an alternative they could take up. Uh, it's not 90% of everyone. And of course, the problem is that that it, there are still people becoming homeless. So there are more people going onto the street uh, all the time. But you know. Um, certainly in England, we saw something extraordinary happen. And, you know, Maggie will talk about uh, about Scotland. But in Wales, I would say it's been even better. So the, the, how much does it cost in England? Well, in, in England, there's only been uh, £3.2 million that's been given to councils to do this. Um, you'll know there's over 300 local councils in England. In Wales, £10 million was given to 22 local councils. Um, and it, it's... Uh, even better in terms of the results in Wales. We're told it's just single figures of people out sleeping rough now in, uh, in Cardiff and other, and other towns and cities, which is absolutely extraordinary. And, and, it, and it's testament, I suppose, to the idea that when government is assertive, when it says what it wants, when it funds what it wants, and when, it's, and when it puts sort of principle into action, uh, extraordinary things really can happen. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. At number four, it's a recent episode which I think both of us really loved, which is Beyond the Lean, Mean, Governing Machine, Reimagining the State. And this is an episode where I think we sort of went into it thinking, well, is this going to be too abstract, too kind of arcane? But it was such a great one that it like whooshed into the top ten at number four. We spoke to writer Sue Goss, who we absolutely adored katie kelly from east Ayrshire council who we also adored and adam led from the think tank new local who we also adored about reimagining our relationship with government it was such a recent episode that not much has happened since but we did have some interesting emails gary lloyd tolacy is about to release a book called gardeners not mechanics how to cultivate change at work on a similar theme john chapman's just we look at participatory budgeting in more detail in the future watch this space and here's sue explain who we adore explaining why government should move from a machine mind to a garden mind we've tended to think about the state 
and all organisations, but particularly the state, as a machine. Um, and the left in particular, you know, the, the early years of the left got very excited about machines and technology and industrial process when we were setting up state interventions, the NHS, whatever. And we've tended to describe state action in machine metaphors. You think, you know, we have got we structure organisations with engineering diagrams. We write uh, corporate plans as if they're car manuals. We say things like wiring and levers and engine and efficiency. All our metaphors um, are about machine, but the state isn't a machine. It's a collection of human beings and it doesn't work like a machine. But those metaphors create a mindset so that we think that if we intervene the way you would in an engineering system, somehow something will happen. And when that machine mind starts to break down is when we're facing, as we are with COVID-19, as we are with most of the wicked issues we're trying to deal with, we're trying to deal with complexity. And the only things that can deal with complexity are organisms. And we're not used to thinking the way we are as as complex organisms. Now, you are a gardener. And I, I say that not simply for sort of horticultural interest, but because you've written a really interesting piece of work um, about moving from the machine mind that you just eloquently set out to the garden mind. So talk to us about what it would mean to move from the machine to the garden mind. So, I mean, I've been working with public sector organisations for about 30 years. And if I think about how change happens there, it doesn't happen the way an engineering system thinks it happens. And just being a gardener, wandering around my garden during lockdown, I was thinking, you know, nature, the way nature does change is completely different to the way we're thinking about change. Actually, what it does is find the spaces where there's room and it it creates plural solutions. It doesn't just create one solution. It creates efficiency through redundancy. It has, it has spare. There's always extra. So it doesn't all have to work. There's always lots of different ways of doing things. And there's always enough for some of it to fail because it's decentralised and it's, it's not organised by one single brain. So I started to think, well, OK, well, if we start to use those ways of thinking... What would we do differently? And I think we'd start to think about experimentation. We'd think about moving through mess and experimentation to order because nature always ends up with order. We always get to order in the end. We get to a balance. But we're also thinking about balancing rather than thinking about, you know, fixing. We are into the big top three and the top three! My God, it's the top three! Very exciting. My voice! I know. I, I, soon you'll only be audible to dogs. Yeah. You sound like Beaker. Mm. That's not the first time anyone's... <laughs> I thought I looked like Beaker. Yeah, you've never heard that you sound like Beaker. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's exciting because it's an episode which takes its title from an ABBA song. It is The Winner Takes It All. A winner takes it all. The dark side of meritocracy. Now, that bit isn't in the other song. And um, you were very excited to speak to this guest. Yes. He's a big hero of yours, American philosopher. Yes. Michael Sandel about his new book, The Tyranny yes. of Merit. It was a powerful critique of the idea of uh, meritocracy. I think, you know, on the face of it, meritocracy sounds like a good thing and he really made some compelling arguments as to why that uh, isn't necessarily the case and loads of people wrote in to tell us it made a big impact on them and they felt that it spoke to the moment we're in and here is michael sandell explaining just what is the problem with a meritocracy the case against it ed begins i think with the deep polarization the rancor and the anger that afflicts politics in democracies around the world, together with the fact that for the past few decades, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening, poisoning our politics and driving us apart. And I think that one of the reasons for this goes beyond the deepening inequalities of income and wealth, which are by now familiar and much discussed. 
to the changing attitudes toward success and failure that have come with it. Somehow those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that by implication, those who struggle must deserve their fate as well. This is what I call the meritocratic hubris of elites that set in, and it leads them to look down on a great many working people, those without university degrees. And this looking down, I think, has contributed to the anger and resentment that has fueled the populist backlash against elites. And and I think what's very significant about your book is that although you are a person very much of the centre-left, you take aim a lot in the book at centre-left governments, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama too, because you're not just saying, as Michael Young was saying, if we ever got to a perfect meritocracy, um, it wouldn't be good, it would be bad. You're saying even distant as we are from, very distant as we are from a meritocracy, the rhetoric of rising, as you call it, is having corrosive effects. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, the the rhetoric of rising is how I describe these by now very familiar phrases, political slogans almost, that are so familiar we consider them uncontroversial. And we hear them from center-left and center-right politicians. The idea that if you uh, if you work hard, everybody should be able to rise as far as their effort and talents will take them. We hear this from politicians in the U.S., in the U.K., center-left, center-right. Barack Obama had a version of it that he was fond of. You can make it if you try. He said that over a hundred times in speeches of various kinds. And it's a rhetoric that's meant to be inspiring to encourage individual upward mobility. The problem is it's taken to be the primary answer, at least by center-left politicians and parties. It's been offered as the primary response to the deepening inequality brought about by globalization in recent decades. And so it has distracted or deflected these parties from contending with that inequality itself, inequalities of income and wealth and power, and focused instead on individual mobility through higher education as the answer. But that's not a plausible answer, first of all, because most people don't get a four-year university degree. In Britain, in the U.S., in most European countries, around two-thirds of adults don't have a four-year university degree. So constructing an economy that makes a university degree and the upward mobility it makes possible, a condition for dignified work and a decent life, that's a mistake. And it's a, it's a damaging mistake because the parties that have made that offer the rhetoric of rising, have missed the insult implicit in it. And the implicit insult to working people, to people who don't have a university degree, is if you didn't go to college or university, and if you're struggling in the new economy, your failure is your fault. Right, we're into the top two, and honestly, it's tough getting into the top two, isn't it? I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a walk in the park. You say this you, as somebody got... who, who was in the top two. Thank you very much. It's even hard to get to number one, as I discovered. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, top two out of 52, I mean, that's not half bad. Not and this was, this was entitled School of Rocking the Boat, Training the Activists of Tomorrow. And this episode came after I got chatted to a couple of young activists on the Tube. It turns out they were from Advocacy Academy, a South London charity that teaches young people how to campaign for change. And they approached me with a mocked up 
newspaper and mocked up uh, Evening Standard um, about empire education. We spoke to teenage activists, Rochelle Meaton and Seema Mangal, who are graduates of the Advocacy Academy program. Uh, we also spoke to Advocacy Academy's founder, Amelia Viney, and Olivia Clark and Katie Cosgrove from Reclaim, a similar organization working in Manchester. We heard about Seema's campaign, I See Free, which was fighting against criminalization of young people of color, and Rochelle's campaign, Fill in the Blanks, to make teaching colonial history compulsory in British schools. Since the episode, Advocacy Academy has been in the news after some of their latest class of activists launched the Halo Code, a guide for schools and workplaces to prevent racial discrimination around hairstyles. And the campaign to reform how British history is taught continues to gather pace. Earlier this year, we also heard from the Black Curriculum's Lavinia Stennett about their calls to include black history in the national curriculum. Here's Rochelle explaining the Fill in the Blanks campaign. Tell us um, about your campaign, because this, the uh, Nico sort of, as I was about to get on the tube, literally about to get on the train, Nico said, Mr. Miliband, I've got something I want to show you. Uh, and I and I and I and the doors were about to close, and I took the paper, and then I thought, well, should I? And I thought, well, I'm not going to walk onto the tube. So I then had the conversation. And it it was a copy of a paper that looked like the Evening Standard, but it had a difference. So tell us about that. Yeah. So I think you picked up a copy of the New Standard. Yeah. Um, which is part of a wider campaign that we pulled off on that day, where we distributed in total, I think, five thousand papers, metros, not metros, um, and new standards claiming that Boris had backed colonial education um, being mandatory. But what you saw was the very end of our action, because this whole campaign started six months ago, way back at the first um, Advocacy Academy residential, where me and six other black and brown students knew we were angry about this issue. So this is like about learning about yeah. empire, the history of empire, mm-hmm. Britain's role, yeah. all of that stuff. We did a podcast episode about it in the summer. It was our favorite yeah, episode of last year because it, you know, it opened my eyes, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so we decided that we were going to make these headlines and distribute all these papers. Um, and we had to collect 5,000 metros and evening standards over, I think, like six or seven weeks. And I think we really did not understand how big of a number 5,000 is. Yeah. We started off like carrying them in our hands and then it became bags for life. And then you have one evening when my dad drove like halfway across London with a boot full of newspapers. Well done, your dad. <laughs> yeah. What's your dad's name? David. David, shout out to David. <laughs> uh, 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 um, yeah, that, so, and then you put a front page and a back yeah. page. Go on. Yeah, so um, we had to write, I think, eight pages of copy in total. So the front page story and then supplementary stories and then reading lists. Um, and then we managed to get an amazing um, graphic designer called Matt Bonner to help us. And then after we printed them all out, we turned the Advocacy Academy campus into a production line. So for two straight nights, we stapled and folded and bundled like 5,000 newspapers. How brilliant. And then you handed them out. And we should say the campaign is called Fill in the Blanks. Yeah. What What, what is the been the reaction to your action? I think the reaction has been really positive. And me and Iman, one of the other co-founders, were talking about this yesterday. We were like, I'm surprised anyone, like, we really didn't think people were going to care. But lots of people have had really positive rea- reactions to it. My mum sent it to all my aunties because she's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> and some of my aunties came back saying, oh, this is so good. But they made the assumption that it was already on the curriculum and that all children had to learn about empire anyway. And let's go to that specific issue as well as about the action. I mean... How does this sort of fit in with your experience? Yeah, so my history lessons were a bit of a car crash. (laughs) Yeah, so I made the choice not to take GCSE history, not because I wasn't good at it. Like, don't get me wrong, my essays on suffragettes in year nine were banging. I'm sure. (laughs) But because I knew I would never see myself represented in any sort of meaningful way, I didn't see the point in pursuing a subject where people who look like me weren't even deemed worthy enough to be on the curriculum. And when you have less black kids taking GCSE history and A-level history and then going to university to take history, you end up with a situation where 96.1% of UK historians are white. And also there's, I think, the way that I was taught empire specifically um, left me feeling really disempowered. Were you taught it? I was I was taught Empire. I think we had a unit in a very small unit in year nine about Empire, but it was like three lessons. Right. And I remember being taught the transatlantic slave um trade like very distinctly. 
my teacher began the lesson by saying that slavery has nothing to do with race. And then I remember by the end of the lesson um, being led to believe that Africa actually benefited from the slave trade just as much as the Americas because Africans received guns in exchange for slaves. Um, and I remember being so speechless. Like, I, I, I couldn't form a sentence. I remember opening my mouth in protest. My mouth just went dry because I knew in my gut and I knew in my head what she was telling me was wrong, but I didn't have the language to express it. And that's why um, the campaign is so important to me because I don't want another black or brown child to feel that powerless ever again. The time is here. We are ready to unveil the number one episode in our Reasons to be Cheerful countdown of It's like the Christmas number one, isn't it? Very much so. How's how's your blood pressure doing? Are you experiencing hypertension? Is it all it's too exciting. much for you? And I think it's a worthy winner. It is a worthy winner. At number one, people are good. Oh. A truly radical well, so it's, it's the right one for the year, isn't it? Absolutely. And what this was, was we spoke to author and historian Rutger Bregman about his fantastic book, Humankind, which argued that people are fundamentally decent. We also spoke to COVID mutual aid volunteer Sam Ma and journalism campaigner Jody Jackson. It was our most popular episode of the year. And just as the episode came out, an excerpt from Rutger's book about the real life Lord of the Flies went viral in The Guardian. And then that triggered a, a huge film rights uh, scramble and uh, the, the hollywood studio who made 12 years a slave and the revenant they're now turning that story into wow i didn't know that yeah it's, it's brilliant and and humankind has been just a runaway success it was named blackwell's non-fiction book of the year and over the course of this year, more than 4,000 COVID mutual aid groups, like the one we heard about from Sanmar, have been set up across the country. And here from our number one episode is the brilliant Rutger Bregman telling us the story of the real-life Lord of the Flies. A couple of kids uh, have, are in an air crash, airplane crash and and you know end up on this uninhabited island. And they at first they try sort of setting up a democracy of sorts, but it doesn't really work out. And at the end of the novel, three of them are dead. And then, you know, they've gone nuts and crazy, you know, this horrible tribal behavior. And um, the message of the novel was, look, here you have nicely uh, or, or, you know, well-behaved uh, British boys from a very good boarding school. But you leave them on an, on an island and this is, ha- this, will ha- this is what happens, you know. And it was also seen as sort of an explanation for the horrors of the 20th century. You know, how do we explain the Holocaust? How do we explain the Second World War? Well, there's a Nazi in each and every one of us. You know, William Golding, the author of Lord of the Flies, said that himself, uh, that he sort of he said i understand the nazis because i am of that sort by nature um so i mean i remember reading this book lord of the flies when i was 16 or 17 years old and it was like this coming of age experience right i think many people have had this that you get this feeling like okay no more harry potter for me you know now this is like a real story how real kids would actually behave um and I, i remember being a little bit depressed but also thought you know this is probably yeah this is probably true it was only years later that I thought, you know, has this ever actually been tried? You know, has there ever been a scientific experiment, you know, where they would actually drop kids on an island and see what would happen? So uh, I'm obviously, I'm a proper uh, investigative journalist. And um, I started Googling, uh, <laughs> and, you know, just looking for things like uh, uh, children on an island, real life Lord of the Flies. And after a while, I stumbled upon an anecdote on some obscure blog that told this story that supposedly this had happened in 1977, that uh, kids from a boarding school in Tonga, which is an island group in the Pacific Ocean, um, had shipwrecked on a small island called Ata, and that they had survived there for more than a year and had been rescued by a captain and, and that they supposedly had stayed friends all this time, you know, very hopeful, uplifting story that it actually did happen, but not in 1977. That was a typo, but it did happen in 1966. So I had this article uh, from The Age, an Australian newspaper, that said that six kids had just been rescued from an island by the captain named Peter Warner. And then I thought, you know, maybe these people are still alive, right? It was 2017, and I thought, you know, the captain must be around 90 years old by now. I mean, 
could he could still be alive and the kids should be around 70 right and there were six of them so maybe i can find them and pure luck would have it that i was about to go on a book tour to australia to you know talk about my previous book utopia for realists and uh you know people are really helpful so you just email and uh, a couple of people and then uh after a long chain of emails you finally get the address of this 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 old captain and we drove there my my wife and uh, and i and um and we met him and he told the story of, of what really happened in the real life Lord of the Flies. And I can assure you that if this would be a movie or, you know, some Hollywood epic, people would say, this is terrible. You know, this is worse than love, actually. You know, this is the most <laughs> sentimental, unrealistic, naive And it was nothing like what... the Lord of the Flies, basically. They, were, they looked yeah. after each other, all of the positive things that you would hope for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, it's really the real Lord of the Flies is a story of friend, uh, friendship and resilience and, and, and loyalty and, and comradeship. It's um, like every in every single way, it's the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. They get the fire started after a couple of months and they never let it go out, you know, for more than a year. And they have this this very smart way of organizing themselves. They work in, in pairs of two, right? Two to guard, two to cook, two to tend to the garden. Um, sometimes they're in fights, but then what happens is that one of the boys will go to one side of the island and the other will go to the other side of the island. They would cool off a little bit, then come back, cry a little bit and say sorry. And, you know, it's, I can't help it. It's really sentimental, but that's how it actually happened. Well, that was a very worthy top 10. And, you know, I hope for the people who didn't necessarily get a chance to listen to all the episodes in the year, it gives a good sort of potted version and they can, if they're really interested, they can go back to the original episode, hear more of it. Um, I, I think we always say this at the end of every episode, but it's important to say this here. If you've got ideas which are triggered um, by what you've heard, thoughts on what you've heard in the top 10, the sort of ideas in there, if you've got ideas for future episodes, we really like to hear from you. Uh, we like to be contacted, cheerfulpodcast.com. You can learn how to find out how to uh, email us. We read every email. Um, uh, if it's a nice email, we're particularly likely to read it out um, to boost our self-esteem. Um, and I just want to really, from the bottom of my heart, thank all of our listeners for their loyalty, their interest, their emails, their ideas uh, during the course of 2020 you know as i think the brilliant team who work on the show and most of all jeff i'd like to thank you yeah i mean i deserve it more than the team who do all the hard work <laughs> you do really <laughs> i've missed uh, missed having you in the loft this year oh, i've missed being in your loft maybe you know, maybe when the vaccination maybe is next year people are vaccinated and it's safe yeah. You can be back here in this attic, which has missed you so much. But uh, yeah, it's it's been a great year as ever. So many brilliant ideas and, and brilliant conversations. And as Ed said, thank you to you for listening and to everyone who works so hard on the show. Emma Corsham, who produces the podcast week in, week out, gets it sounding great. All the ideas are sort of, um, researched and, and generated really by Joel Pierce, who uh, I think this kind of eats his whole life and he does such a brilliant job for us. We appreciate him hugely and the the, the gang he's got working with him, uh, Fanula DC, Zoe Gelber and Joe Kenyon. And we should uh, we should mention Gail, our announcer, Gail Lofthouse, Ed Seed, who composed the music, uh, James Deacon, who made the eye dance, and the artwork in 2020 was brought to you by... Henry Cole. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been 2020's Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.